Amen. Thank you, Kathy, for leading us so well in our scripture reading this morning about prayer. Hey, dear friends, it's good to be back. Uh, Sharon and I took some time away. We took some vacation. I also had an opportunity to take some study leave and read some books. I had a stack of books that I've been kind of shelving and hoping to read through, and I got an opportunity to read that and do some writing and, and praying. I spent a lot of time in prayer, praying for you. I have a list. Your names are on my list, and I pray for you by name. I pray for your families, and I pray for the things I know some of you are going through, the difficult things, the challenges that you have faced, the, the uncertainties, also the, the ways God is breaking through in into your life, and new opportunities, and new ways of seeing the world, and new friendships, and New relationships, praying for each other and caring for one another. We've been spending time, a lot of time in thinking about parables uh, this uh, last this uh, summer season, and, and Luke records three parables on prayer. Only Luke has these parables on prayer. And last week we were able to, through the giftedness of our preaching team member. Jim Gaston. Think about a, a parable about how we continue to pray um, and not give up. Even if this unjust lawyer, this judge is not going to listen, you keep pounding, keep asking, keep pleading. Eventually, even if that unjust judge will answer, how much more will God? How much more will God? And the other parable that Jesus teaches about prayer. There's nothing there, so he goes next door. He knocks on his neighbor's door and says, Hey, I need help. I need some bread. The neighbor's like, Too late. I'm in bed. Everybody's asleep. We're done watching our Netflix show. Come away, you know. He keeps pounding on the door. The point of the parable is stick at it. Stay with it. Don't give up on God, God has not given up on you, right? Well, this third parable of, of prayer, it might surprise us. It's, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, you've often heard me say, you know, what matters to you matters to God. Bring it to prayer. Apparently, this parable that Jesus tells, it, it surprises us because... It's not necessarily everything that we pray about does God hear. Maybe God doesn't pay attention to some of our prayers. That's what Jesus is talking about here in this parable that we're invited into. The implication is that apparently God doesn't want to hear certain things. Now, unlike most parables, Luke provides a little bit of an intro to this one. The statement, he says what the parable is about before we get the parable. And the parable is about humility or the lack of it. it comes out of Luke chapter 18. He says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an old joke about a guy who wrote a book titled, Humility and How I Achieved It. It's a joke because anyone who actually is humble wouldn't go around blabbing about it, let alone write a book. That's the paradox of humility. Unlike other virtues, the person who possesses humility generally has no idea that they do. In our story, a Pharisee apparently is under the impression that he has achieved humility. And now in front of everyone, standing at the altar, telling God all about his new book, beginning on chapter 1. It's a sh- and then a sharp contrast emerges right away. When we are told that if the Pharisee is not the only one in the temple praying that day. A man in the back row who knows he possesses no means by which to claim his righteousness. If he's going to be justified, it's all going to be on God. Entirely up to God. Nothing he can do about it. It's not on his merit. Indeed, he knows he has done much to offend. That's why he stands back throwing his arms up, crying out to God for God's mercy. I'm a sinner. His prayer is one of honesty mixed with a desperate cry for help. He turns to the only place he can, the only place for healing, the only place that can truly bring forgiveness, that can truly deliver him. A prayer very similar to Psalm 51 Here, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The Pharisee must have missed the day that Jesus was teaching about prayer that Kathy Neely read for us today. Jesus taught the crowds how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The, the prayer is all about God. begins with God and ends with God. Give us this day our daily bread. God, we trust you for everything. Our very breath. Forgive us, Lord. And help us to forgive those who have done us wrong. The Pharisee claims righteousness based on his own virtues. What he's done not what God is doing. He claims vindication based on his perceived virtue. Look at me. I deserve a gold medal, God. He makes his defense. I've done this and that. And I make sure I'm nothing like those over there. Now, my guess, the crowd that day, they all got a good laugh. They must have. I mean, when the, he describes this Pharisee and, and how he's up doing this thing in front of the altar, making such a fool of himself, right? 
Maybe even in their own minds, they replace the Pharisee with somebody in their life that is so full of themselves. And yet the parable doesn't let them off that easy, does it? Why? Well, Jesus flips the script on them. He includes the prayer of someone no one would have thought to be in church that day. In those days, the tax collectors were, no one liked them. And if no one liked them, then God didn't like them. Luke tells us right in the next chapter that Jesus, as he's going through Jericho, there's a a guy who climbs a tree, a tax collector, and Jesus looks up to the tree and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to spend time at your house. And Luke records what the crowd does. The crowd says, look how he's gone to be with tax collectors and sinners. He's defiling himself, they grumble. That's how embedded this hatred was for tax collectors. I'm sure when Jesus finishes his parable, many thought to themselves, perhaps even verbalized under their breath, why does Jesus have to do that? Why does he have to go to the extreme? Why does he have to bring in this tax collector? The the parable was going so well. Why couldn't he have like a shepherd boy come in and shepherd boy saying, oh, Lord, forgive me. Or, or maybe a parent praying for reconciliation with a child or a business person saying, Lord, I've hit the, the skids. I need wisdom in the next move. What should I do? Why doesn't he do that? He has to put, bring out the enemy. And the enemy's prayer is the one that God pays attention to. Apparently ignoring the prayer of the Pharisee. Jesus says the one who went home was vindicated. The one who went home vindicated was the bad guy. Now, likewise, we may find it reasonable to read this parable with an unconscious sense that in response it creeps into our prayers. Lord, thank you that I'm not like that hypocrite Pharisee in the parable. Self-congratulatory. Thank you, God, that I can see right through it. That's self-righteous prayer. I'd never do that. Amen. I'm convinced this parable invites us to consider a deeper truth, a deeper message that Jesus is inviting the church to consider, to reflect on. A warning of sorts, how self-justification can easily creep into our lives and into our church life that will have an effect on the most important relationships in our lives, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with ourself. This form of self-deception, it leads us to, to inflate our virtues while we inflate the wrongs of others. And as a result, we have a very difficult time seeing others as people. They just become objects. That's when judgment takes over, takes root, fed by resentment and pride. We hear about it all the time, those people over there, if they would just do this or stop doing that or or that group, they're always saying that or always pushing that agenda. Whatever, Whatever we get going on this, we no longer look at others as people, people, human beings who needs God's mercy, right? 
We deceive ourselves into thinking that we have it all together. And thankfully, we're not like you fill in the blank. Here's a simple example. Some of you went to the same driving school I did. And when I'm in a hurry, I regard other vehicles, other drivers as the problem. Why can't they just get out of the way? Why are they driving so slow? This is called a freeway for a reason. Move over. I race in front of the other car, and I make sure that they sense that they're in the wrong and I'm in the right. I think I'm so glad I don't drive that way. I'm more courteous with everybody in front or in back. I'm not going to slow anybody else down. How rude. I'm the most conscientious here. It's called a freeway for a reason, yes. Well, you get the picture. And what's worse from that form of self-justification, it gives the illusion that, well, my issues, my problems are more important than everybody else's. And I'm the most committed. I'm the hardest working. What it ends up doing is giving us a false sense of security, doesn't it? That we're no longer responsible for the things that we really need to do. The words that we really need to share with somebody, I am sorry, or I forgive you, or relinquish those prejudices that developed over time. We look at others and we otherize them. Racial prejudice. Those of a different faith, those of a different culture, we just, oh, they're over there. And that's when we begin to look at others, not as people, but rather as problems. So we blame them for the problems of the world. This can happen at home. It can happen at work. It can happen at church. It can happen in our neighborhoods. I got to believe that Jesus knew this was going to happen and that we would have a difficult time. We want to justify ourselves, inflating our virtues and inflating others' faults. However subtle or under the table it might be, it's dangerous business. In reality, it only causes anxiety and more anxiety, more fear, more stress in our lives to keep up the appearances, to continue to self-justify, to really betray ourselves. So now you're asking, well, okay, Pastor John, what's the answer? What do we do? Be more humble? Okay, we could start there. Or we could start with holding the judgment of others. Begin regarding others as human beings. Human beings with worries, concerns that we have. Challenges, and families, dreams, goals, people just like us who need God's mercy. Can you imagine if that Pharisee, rather than standing in the front of the altar and telling God how great he is, decided to go in the back, put his arm around that tax collector, and say, I am so glad that you're here. Let's pray about God's mercy together. Let's see how we can receive God's mercy together. You see, humility begins with trusting God. Trusting God with the good and the bad, the joy and the suffering, 
the very clear and the murky parts of life. And humility is an attempt to place the blame on others for our mess. Take (laughs) self-responsibility for the things that we need to correct in our own lives. Jesus modeled humility for his first disciples. On the night that he was betrayed, he gathered them together in the upper room, and he humbled himself, right? He washed their feet, all of the disciples. And then as they reclined around the table, he took bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, which has been given for you. Whenever you eat of this, remember me, dear friends. This will nourish your life. This will awaken your hearts to God's mercy and grace. This will sustain you when it's difficult, when life is uncertain, when your faith is in the wilderness. This bread will nourish you. Take and eat. Dear friends, you have a fellowship cup with you. You can do that now. You can take the bread if you're at home. Take and receive the bread of life. Thanks be to God. And at the end of the meal, Jesus took the cup. He says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me.